1: Hello, Jess here. I just wanted to let you know that this episode of Yours Sincerely was recorded before the tragic death of David Amos. It's been a hard week for me and all of my colleagues in the Houses of Parliament, but hopefully this chat with my good friend Paul Brand can provide some distraction at this difficult time and shows that those of us who work in Parliament, no matter what our jobs, are often... Much friendlier than people would have it believe. I hope you enjoy. Hello, my name is Jess Phillips and this is yours sincerely. At the start of the very first lockdown in my work as an MP, I was seeing lots of my constituents who were losing loved ones to COVID-19 without a chance to say one last goodbye. It got me thinking about what I would say to my husband and kids if I never got a chance to tell them how much I loved them. So I wrote them each a letter. I still keep it in a safe place. I've always been a prolific letter writer, both the good and bad kind, and know the power of putting words on paper. So in this podcast, I want to give my guests a chance to celebrate three people that mean the world to them. Someone they love, someone who's no longer around, and someone who doesn't realise how significant a role they've played in their lives. And when we've heard more about each person, they'll reveal how they would sign off each letter. Paul Brand is a journalist and broadcaster and currently works as the UK editor of ITV News. He was named Political Journalist of the Year at the British Journalism Awards in 2020, presents the ITV News podcast Acting Prime Minister, and is also the co-founder of the LGBT Plus Campaign School Diversity Week. And today I'm excited to talk to him about the letters
0: he would send to three people who mean the world to him. So, hello Paul, how are you? Hi, I'm good thanks. Yeah, how are you Jess?
1: I'm okay. I feel that I should start early with um, a confession about when I first met you, about how I you were very slickly dressed, and I believe you had like an overcoat, like uh, you had a belted mac
0: that was very very trendy. <laughs> Sounds classic, classic reporter slash detective style. <laughs>
1: yeah, you look exactly that that sort of thing, and it was a sort of like you know biscuit coloured mac. And the first time I met you, I think I said that you looked a little bit like you were in the S.S. Or something
0: like that. Do you know what? I, I don't remember that. Thankfully, because <laughs> yeah, it's not really the look I'm going for. I'll be honest.
1: It's just like, oh my gosh, because you're blonde-haired and tall and blue-eyed, and you were wearing this coat. And I remember thinking, I, I not just thinking it as is my gift at saying it, but I'm, I'm glad that this has not been your abiding memory of me.
0: Yet. I like to think I'm a little more, a little more approachable than uh, the <laughs> The SS.
1: Yeah, well dressed. No.
0: I'll, t- I'll, take it. I'll take it as a compliment somehow.
1: My husband is always like, why is it always the worst people in history who are the best dressed?
0: <laughs> Hang on, wait a minute. We're, still, we're not still putting me in the category of the worst <laughs> not, people in not history. You, <laughs> the worst people in history.
1: DSS, I think he thought that, you know, that maybe Gaddafi as well was a very well-dressed man. And also he obviously likes the uniform. Have you ever seen a picture of young Stalin?
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: Oh, what a hottie. Yeah.
0: Yeah, crisp, crisply dressed.
1: Yeah, and just quite like, looks like a hipster. (laughs) Anyway, moving on from terrible tyrants of our times, we're here to talk about nice people, (laughs) not terrible tyrants. So this podcast, Paul, is all about saying nice things about nice people and writing letters. And it all comes from the idea that as somebody who I know, like I was, was heavily involved in the fallout of the first lockdown and seeing terrible things. I saw people who had not had a chance to say goodbye to their loved ones uh, in the most awful situation that they'd put them in an ambulance and never seen them again, which is a phenomenon that we're not so used to. Like most people get time to say the things they want to say when people are dying. And it just seemed like, oh, you know, I, and I wrote letters to my husband because I was so, seeing so many people, as were you, uh, who were just losing their loved ones so fast. And so this is, the idea is to talk about sort of letter writing and uh, appreciation of people we love. So are you somebody who loves
0: a letter? I do appreciate a letter, but do you know what I appreciate even more is a really old Hotmail account?
1: (laughs) Me too. It's the best.
0: That is a treasure trove. I've got a Hotmail account from when I was 13, which I still use now. Luckily, it's not like, you know, sexy chick 81 or whatever, <laughs> whatever was the, w- which is what my lot of my other friends had. It's just quite a plain uh, address. But in there are loads of emails from my friends when we were teenagers, and they are just gold. And I love going back through them every now and then and forwarding them on to friends and being like, what were we on about here? It's just, they're just wonderful.
1: Yeah, I will make a, an admission here that the Labour Party, when it emails me about things, it has a very, very old account on my membership it's like an old yahoo account that i only ever use when i have to vote in an internal election in the labour party and so but every time there is an internal election in the labour party which is every five minutes i go back in and look at yeah my 16 year old self talking to her mate who'd moved to china or because it was the dawn of the internet then when i was that age
0: and this was the age when emails were written like letters oh totally they're really long now I'd be like don't send me an email like that and quite formal (laughs) as well (laughs) in fact I dug a couple out for the podcast this is from my best mate who I grew up with in Wales hello I finally got the net after five days of trying to connect brackets it wouldn't work but I'm just looking around at the moe sorry to tell you but two of your fish have died leaving only the one but he seems perfectly well best wishes David (laughs) I
1: mean (laughs) I mean that is So weirdly formal.
0: Yeah, I think it must have been on holiday at the time, by the sounds of it. Um, But yeah, just lovely. Or this was an absolute classic as well from another mate, uh, which is obviously one of those round-robin emails, but I loved how vintage it was. I'm sending this mail because there's a great new free service called MSN Messenger Service that will help us stay in touch. (laughs) Do you remember that, MSN Messenger? The hours I wasted on that (laughs) Messenger Service every night. Just beautiful. And one last one from um, my very first and very on-off girlfriend, mostly off, to be honest, considering how my (laughs) life panned out. But I love this one. Hiya, so this is a purely hypothetical question. If you were good friends with someone, but you liked them a lot and wanted to go out with them, but you doubted very much that they would, should you tell them? Or should you keep it quiet in case of ruining the friendship? Do you think she's trying to tell me something? <laughs> oh my god that is just brilliant i know these are all great but um
1: oh my god that is just that's almost like very very the pathos in the, in the, <laughs> the last is immense
0: yeah. yeah they are a lot of fun reading that through those do
1: you ever try i once had like a sort of Uh, I'm going to say tryst Uh, I don't really know what that word means but I think that's that's what it was Um, with a a bloke that I'd met at a conference (laughs) like I was working as event staff and he was there and he then moved back to Australia and we used to write each other these like really, really long emails and recently I thought that oh, you know, I'll see what he's up to and he obviously no longer checks a 25-year-old email address um and but do you ever try and get in touch with the people are you still in touch with that your on-off girlfriend
0: Yeah, I am. I'm still in touch with all my mates from school actually, which is really lovely. So yeah, most of the people who sit in my hotmail folders uh, I'm still in touch with. So I do ping them emails every now and then and forward on these crazy messages that we sent.
1: I um my my Yahoo account is uh, a thing of great comfort to me actually on the topic of the podcast is and I read them I read through them when Like I say, I have to go in and find through 7,000 Facebook updates that still seem to go to that Yahoo address. I go through and find emails that my mum sent me, and she died 10 years ago. So often, when I'm thinking about who I'm going to vote for in the Labour Party thing, I'm thinking, I'm also reading uh, emails from my mum, and it just seems like one day, like I worry that they will turn off the service. Like, like, they're not going to do that are they they're not going to turn off the old hotmail accounts
0: no well, i mean you can't get a new hotmail account anymore can you but they've all been oh can't you Does that not exist anymore no i don't think they exist anymore they've all been moved over to a different service but they you know they you can still access your account so well i can still access mine anyway thankfully but yeah no i know what you mean there's there are some really precious emails actually sitting in there aren't there some real family memories and i do worry that they would turn it off like photos that you've lost because you lost
1: your phone or or whatever now that all goes to the cloud but the cloud back when MSM Messenger was a thing. We didn't speak of the cloud.
0: Oh, no, we didn't. We did not. I don't think we could even send a photo via the internet, never mind our phones at that point. It would take about five minutes to load. Do you remember when it used to load in like lines, blocks? You'd have to sit there. And oh. that
1: noise. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: what was that noise? And your mum would be like, Can you get off the internet? I need to phone your father. <laughs> yeah, you used to plug it into the phone. <laughs> yeah, you did.
1: So retro. Um, Yeah, my kids have no idea. My husband was talking to um, like a 21-year-old who just started working with him. And um, he was telling the story about how he'd been to a party and he'd gone in a cab from the pub with some people he didn't really know to this party. And then he came out the house and he didn't know where he was and he had to walk around uh, and look for like some sort of sign of where he was so that he could find his way home. And this young person was literally like... I don't understand what you're saying. Why didn't you just look on Google Maps? It was like, I didn't have a phone, let alone. Did I have Google Maps to just tell me where I am all the time? I had to wander the streets of Lazelles until I realised where I was. Like, Or get out an AA
0: map or whatever it was that we used to use. Which
1: was immediately out of date, the A to Z. Oh,
0: the A to Z, that was it. Oh, yeah never pocket-sized never quite pocket-sized was it never
1: quite <laughs> pocket-sized and my dad would like give me one for london if i'd like go down to london that was from 1964 <laughs> it's like this is not helpful dad. But thanks very much right that is brilliant you're the most well-prepared guest we've ever had and that you had like a rich seam of previous letters that you had kept so this podcast is all about writing letters to celebrate people who matter to us, starting with the person who means the world to you, who would you write your first letter to?
0: Well, there are lots of people, obviously, who mean the world to me, but we've just had a son, so I quite like the idea of writing a letter to my son, because you know what it's like when you have kids, you take so many photos, and they're amazing.
1: Only your first
0: kid's oh, Okay. <laughs> Obviously wears well. I
1: have considerably fewer of my second child
0: yeah I'm a second child and there aren't there aren't as many family albums of me I've noticed, but you've got so many of these photos, but I don't think we record how we feel as much, and obviously a photo brings back how you feel to some degree, but I think in the old days when we used to write a lot more letters, you know there would be a kind of written history of how we were feeling at a time or what we were thinking. Um, but these days it's all texts and as we've just been talking about, you know, they'll get deleted off your old phone and you lose them forever. So I quite like the idea of writing him a letter about what I'm thinking and feeling now, that he could maybe open when he was 18 and have a read about how we felt about him when he first arrived.
1: Totally do that. That is a lovely idea. So tell us a bit about your son then. What's his name?
0: His name's Tomas.
1: Thomas? Yeah, it's
0: Welsh, which has caused a little bit of... <laughs> A problem living in England, uh, which I hadn't quite anticipated. But uh, yeah, it's just it's just Thomas with an O instead of an A at the end, basically. So Thomas, how old is he now? He's four months old now. Yeah.
1: Oh gosh, you're through the worst of it, Paul. You're through the the first eight weeks is the worst eight weeks of your life.
0: <laughs> yeah, he's sleeping through the night now, which feels <gasps> that's impressive. so much more manageable. Yeah, the sleep deprivation is is tough at the start, isn't it?
1: Yeah. Oh, my God. Nothing will prepare you for that. It's like it's an actual torture technique that is used by the well-dressed tyrants of the world. And there is nothing that can ever prepare you for how you're going to feel.
0: No, and it does, I mean, people say all the time, don't they, it changes you. And I thought when people said it changes you, they meant that you wear joggers all day long, or you really get into <laughs> pepper Pig, or you age by 10 years. And those things definitely happen. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I don't know, it's, it's definitely changed me in more fundamental ways than that, I think. it's There's like something really beautifully balancing about having a child. It just kind of resets you a little bit. I think it's quite healthy for me. And I'm not saying you have to ever have a child to be healthy, but I think it's definitely good to have a focus outside of work, whatever that is. And children is definitely something that helps you just kind of, just to balance things out a bit.
1: I wish it wasn't the case from a feminist perspective, but when I had my first child, and I genuinely wish this wasn't the case, but it was the way I felt. And I just have to be honest about the fact that it was the way I felt. I felt like I mattered in the world for the first time. And like, that's, that's a reason why lots of young women, um, not to get council houses, contrary to popular belief. Well, a lot of uh, young women who I've worked with in the past, I think, have really felt like it was the beginning of their life to when they had a baby and that it made them have something to... Go about their life for and I certainly felt like that and I, like I say I wish that that didn't come with the sort of heavy tomes of women are meant to feel this way uh, and uh, that all we're here for is to you know have babies and all that jazz I wish it didn't but that is the way I felt but I also felt fear for the first time I thought I'd been scared of things I had no clue do you feel scared now in a way
0: oh the fear of when you know if he yeah if you think there's something wrong with him it's awful isn't it but but no I, I can understand where you're coming from with that one because I think it's kind of it's felt like that to me as well as an LGBT person, right? Because I think a lot of LGBT people seek validation in life to some degree, because you know, if you're from any minority or you're any any marginalized group, you kind of want to impress and you kind of want to prove yourself in the world. And I think for me, a lot of that came from my work and I still love my job and I still there's still lots more I want to do. But it's amazing having something in life that is unconditional you know when when Thomas looks at me and he loves me it's just amazing and I think you shouldn't you shouldn't have a child just to heal yourself but (laughs) but it is definitely a really different type of feeling to get that that self-worth actually from something that's unconditional like that
1: yeah you've just got to keep on going like I remember saying to my mom like what if I can't cope? And she's like, well, there isn't really an alternative.
0: (laughs) No, you can't give them (laughs) back. So,
1: uh, yeah, it's just like, oh, dear, there's there's not really another option, so you're going to have to crack on, love. I was like, okay, "Okay, then I'll just do that then. But, yeah, I think that... And when I... I was thinking about this the other day. When I had my baby, so the eldest one is nearly 17... It was still, um, and I was thinking about it because my friend Caroline, who uh, is in an LGBT relationship and her daughter is six, 15, 16. And I remember like that being the first time I'd ever known anybody who hadn't, like, had children and then come out as being LGBT. And so by virtue of that, had children. I had friends with, like, lesbian moms when I was growing up, but they had been in heterosexual relationships. But my friend Caroline, she had a baby with her partner, lovely Eleanor. I-, I hadn't quite taken on board that to do that 15 years ago was actually really trailblazing. And now it doesn't seem like that bigger deal and there 's been much progress in that definitely
0: there 's so much to be thankful for and surrogacy which is which is how Thomas came into the world, is still relatively rare there 's only around four hundred babies each year born via surrogacy, but it does feel as though yeah not four hundred yeah only around four hundred a year, yeah, really small, really small and that 's in the u k right so you know there are people who live in the u k who who go abroad. But um, yeah, it's it's still quite niche in the UK. But what I've really noticed lately is a lot of my gay friends, when we had Thomas, a lot of them came forward to us and said, look, we've been thinking about having a child, whether it's through adoption or surrogacy, you know, could we have a chat to you? And I think that was one of the huge steps that gay marriage took. Was that you know for right or wrong, as a society, you know we view the kind of nuclear family as as, two cu- as a couple who bring a child into the world, and so I think just the ability to be able to get married as a gay couple means that that setup is now starting to be viewed as a real possibility that you could you could be a couple that is in a, a solid relationship and that you could have a child and bring them into the world too. So I think there will probably be quite a big upsurge potentially in in surrogacy and same-sex adoption in the in the coming years.
1: I offered to be a surrogate to two different people. I remember somebody saying to me and my husband when we were talking about it, that, you know, how are you going to feel giving the baby away? And my husband was like, I have the exact opposite problem, is that what if they didn't take it? He was like, he was just like, oh, my God, I need some cast iron guarantee that, that this baby is going to get taken away.
0: It, that is, you know, it's so interesting that you say that as well, because I think there when when we had Thomas, you know, we we posted on social media, which, you know, I should know better, quite frankly. <laughs> And we had so much love and and for some God knows why reason um a couple of the newspapers um picked up on the story, and they wrote it up beautifully and We were really pleased but o- obviously there 's always five percent of people who just want to use your personal life to make some kind of strange political point so we did ha- We did have some kind of nasty comments um, and I think what it showed to me is how much misunderstanding there is about the surrogacy process so you know, our surrogate is someone who I've known all my life and is really, really close to to Joe and I, my husband. And it was her idea, and it was something that she had decided she wanted to do in her life, regardless of, of of who it was with. And you can put yourself forward to agencies. And she said to to Joe and I, you know, it might be something you guys are considering. Do you want to kind of team up with me and we could do it together? And we were like, wow, that's that's absolutely amazing. But no, her her, her fear and the fear of other surrogates we've spoken to was less, like you say, around, you know, oh God, what if I want to keep the baby? It was the complete opposite. It was, what if the intended parents don't want the baby?
1: Yeah, like, what if something happens? And, like... I mean, my husband wasn't that keen when I was pregnant with the children. <laughs> I mean, he was a bit like, oh God, we'll just have to put up with this. Like, you know, I wasn't expecting this in my life, but okay, I'll, I'll make the best of it. And he's a much better father than I am a mother. But like genuinely, like, he's like, I will have to make the best fist of this, but that's the that was the risk for him. Uh, and, and equally for me, that was the risk. And similarly, it was our friends, of my friends uh, in a gay couple, part of me tiny, a tiny... WhitBit wanted the Daily Mail to lose its... <laughs> <shit. Yeah. laughs> There's a tiny element of it that, where I was like that. If I give my baby away to a, a gay immigrant, he is, I just thought this this might be the thing that makes them implode. But I offered to them and my sister-in-law, who, uh, when she was struggling to have a baby, I said, look, I will gladly, if if this is something that... Uh, you find that you can't then I would do it and, and neither of them took me upon my offer obviously maybe they looked at my children and thought I think we can get better But <laughs>
0: yeah, it is amazing it's amazing that women want to do it and we're just we're just so super lucky and a lot of, a lot of the comments we got I say a lot some the, the small minority of comments we got back some people were sort of saying you know that surrogacy is a, a violation of a woman which which hurt us a lot actually because like I say this is someone I've known all my life and it was very much her idea and she felt quite angry that people were telling her what she should and shouldn't be doing with her body because it was very much her decision. So I think it's amazing that w- that women want to do this and all power to them. Uh, yeah, there, I mean, as
1: as a uh, false right feminist who deals in these things all the time, I think that, that there is, uh, you know, the the conversation to be had about the, the matter of choice and it is fine for a woman to choose to do that. I think, you know, it's nobody else's business, frankly.
0: Yeah, I just wish we could be a bit more understanding about these you know families come in all shapes and sizes and people do surrogacy for all kinds of reasons and as long as it's really well regulated and women are really well protected as as i believe they currently are in the law then i think let people crack on with what's I mean, best for it, them. i
1: didn't realize it was such a small number because i know a couple of people who've been surrogates for people
0: funnily enough so i mean they're obviously <laughs> real
1: outliers there you go who knew i didn't realize but uh, so you're writing your letter to Thomas. Now, obviously, normally I would say, do you think this person knows how you feel about them? Uh, now, I'm saying at four months, he probably does know how you feel about him, but also wouldn't be able to put that into words necessarily.
0: <laughs> yeah, not words that he could understand. <laughs> <laughs> That's all right in baby speak somehow. But no, because this is, he's going to open this in ideally in, on his 18th birthday, I would sign off by saying, you were born during a pandemic, a socially distanced world, where you pulled so many so much closer together. Because that's really how it felt to us, was that at a time when we couldn't be together with people we loved and we were going through this process at a distance from the people who were involved in it, it was this most amazing feeling of just all coming together. And when he was born, I've never felt so close to to everyone around me. It was amazing.
1: There was a huge amount of talk, actually, throughout the pandemic about people giving birth, wasn't there, and people... At first, it focused very much on the actual birth process and whether people could go in the room. But it also became about the process, like people not being able to go to the scans and things and all of that sort of stuff that we just take for granted. But then, like, you know, the the moment that a baby is born, it's like it all goes away.
0: And I've got to say our experience of the NHS was incredible actually during the pandemic because there were the rules in place about visiting June scans, which we totally understood but it's a slightly different dynamic as well when it's surrogacy because there are four people involved right because it was the surrogate and and her husband and then Joe and I so it was difficult in terms of numbers everyone wanted to be in the room and support each other <laughs> but they were they were amazing at, at kind of telling us when we could you know um when we could go in and when we couldn't and for the birth they really bent over backwards and made sure that it was a safe socially distanced way for us all to be there for the birth which was just so important so you know hats off to them they they've done everything they can in the NHS to I think, personally, from my perspective, to make it as easy as they can. Oh
1: yeah, I mean, they definitely did uh, everything that they possibly could. It's just you know, nobody was, nobody was expecting this. Yeah, there will be moments if you you know, in writing a letter to your son when he's eighteen, you'll want to rip it up. <laughs> <laughs> and. I, I had one of those moments this morning when one of my children had broken the earphones that I am currently wearing. And there were times when I would say things like, it's a good job, you're pretty to look at, because otherwise you'd be on the railway line. Oh, no.
0: Well, what I'll definitely have to enclose <laughs> in the envelope as well is a, is a photo of him in the bath or whatever, because that, that, for 18th birthday, that is standard embarrassment. Yeah, material, that's isn't it?
1: absolutely... <laughs> A classic. It is a lovely, lovely story and a very, you know, happy ending in a very difficult time. So the second letter we asked you to write, Paul, is to somebody who is no longer around. So who would your second letter be?
0: So my second letter would be to a lady called Miriam Hobbs. When I was in my early 20s, like lots of people, I lost my grandparents, they passed away and I'd been really close to them. We were a really close family growing up in Wales and we saw them every week and yeah, I missed them. I missed that kind of connection with the older generation. So fairly soon after they passed away, I volunteered for what was then Age Concern, known as the Charity Age UK, for their Befriender Scheme. Um, really, because selfishly, I just wanted to hang out with an older person and ask them for some tips on life. But in theory, it was altruistic, and I was gonna, <laughs> <laughs> I was gonna keep someone else company rather than just desperately needing the company myself. And they paired me with the most beautiful woman called Miriam Hobbs. She was amazing. She was 88 when we first met, and I was with her for eight years. And she passed away when she was 96. Oh, she led a great life, an absolutely amazing life. And she had a, a wonderful family, a, quite a small family. They were wonderful and, and they'd never you know, they all they could ever do for her, they did. But the reason she was a little bit kind of lonely was that she'd used to live opposite the RAF base in, in a town called St. near where I grew up. And she was like the life and soul of this RAF base because she used to take the the, the guards on the gates cups of tea whenever they changed shift. And they used to come and talk to her about their problems because, you know, these are, these are men away from home and they didn't have a lot of female company. And so I think they missed their mums and all that kind of stuff. A lot of them were quite young. So she became legendary on the RAF base as Granny Hobbs. And she loved it, you know, she loved that interaction that she had. And then, like many older people, when she was unable to kind of take care of her own home, they moved her into a council flat, which was on the first floor. And she quickly essentially became housebound. She couldn't leave the flat because she couldn't walk around. So it was that dramatic change in lifestyle, I think, which was really tough for her going from being the life and soul to really being stuck on her own in a flat 24 hours a day. And no matter what her family did, no matter how many times they visited her, they just couldn't really match what her life was before. So anyway, we got to know each other really well over those years, and I used to go and visit her every week. And although we knew each other really well, she was quite blind by the end, and I'm not totally convinced she had any idea what I looked like. (laughs) I went around once, and um, she just randomly proclaimed, oh, do you know, I met someone else the other day with a ponytail. (laughs) I was like, what? What? Sorry, what? She was like, well, you've got a ponytail, haven't you? I was like, I definitely have not got a ponytail. And she... (laughs) in her kind of stern Welsh way she was like well you used to have a ponytail I was like I have literally never had a ponytail (laughs) it's a little bit on the slanderous side actually to go around (laughs) telling people I've got a ponytail so god knows what she thought I looked like but (laughs) (laughs) but yeah personality wise we got on really well so
1: loads of your work funnily enough well certainly throughout the pandemic focused on the experience of older people and the care homes And, you know, very notably, I think that you you were the sort of pinnacle of covering the care home issue when people were ignoring it during the pandemic. And some of the programming that you made, it was very, very very moving because of the sort of centering of the experiences of older people. So this is obviously something, you know, in Miriam and your relationship and you're volunteering to do that. There is obviously something that you you know you feel very akin to older people not being forgotten and taken for granted or ignored.
0: Yeah definitely and you know I don't want to sound overly earnest about it and and sort of overstate it but the thing that I really got from Miriam was the sense that she felt like she was a burden to society you know that I was going up there every week and she was always so worried about oh you've driven half an hour to get here and You know, you must have a sandwich when you arrive. And, you know, know, I'm so sorry you've come all this way. And when I left, what used to really kind of kill me, actually, was that she used to say, you know, thank you for coming. Thank you for being my friend. And I used to say to her, no, thank you for being my mate. You know, I've had a really great time being here with you today. You've given me some brilliant advice. I've got all your wisdom. I've soaked up all your life experience. You know, it's a two way street that we're both getting something great from this friendship. And so I suppose that, yeah, that, that not just that experience of Miriam, but just general experience in life. We all, we all have it, don't we, of people that we've loved who are older and you can kind of see how they are devalued. When you reach a certain age and you're no longer perceived to be useful to society, you're kind of chucked on the scrap heap. And I certainly felt that with care homes, you know, when we started looking into that issue at the start of the pandemic. I feel quite strongly that that there probably was a tendency in government that older people were a little bit more disposable. And rightly so, you know, they put a lot of effort into the NHS. And I'm not saying it was a deliberate policy, but perhaps they just didn't think so much about social care because, you know, all, everyone in society is guilty of kind of perceiving those people as having slightly more disposable lives.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, the, the, without question, and I, I, I wouldn't just, you know, lay at the doors of the government. I think it's a general trend that people think that it's just sort of like oh well they were going to die anyway do you know what I mean like not recognizing that they are people with wisdom and stuff to offer and and also I mean I, I would say from a feminist perspective that the people who are doing the caring of elderly people and people in you know adult people in social care the adult working adult population in social care which often gets forgotten they're poor women Often migrant women, either you're poor or migrant women. And so the value that we place on their work is, is just sort of like, oh, well, you know, they're not skilled. They're not, it's just, you know, a crappy job. And it's sort of like, I, I used to think this certainly when my children were in nursery. I used to think the people I entrust with the most important thing in my life get paid less than the people who look after my car. Like, this is my baby and he's four months old and I have handed him over to you and I literally live in fear of a tiny hair on his head being out of place. And I'm handing this person over to you to look after and you are being paid less than the person who I've asked to make sure my clutch is all right.
0: Yeah, and, and there's been a real problem, I think. You, you struck something that I really firmly believe in, actually, which is that carers themselves are devalued by society and they're not taken anywhere near as seriously as, as people in other professions. So, you know, I switched on the Today programme this morning, for example, and no criticism of the, of the BBC because I'm sure all of us have, have been guilty of this. But, you know, there's a story about GPs and lo and behold, there's a, there's a GP speaking really brilliantly on, on the airwaves about what they need and what, what, what they should be given in order to function properly. You know, when was the last time you heard a carer interviewed on a really serious show? Because the assumption is they don't have any authority to speak on this. It's
1: dreadful, isn't it? That is dreadful. But it's so, you're right.
0: Yeah. So we tried really hard in our coverage to put carers at the heart of it. And, and actually, you know, if we're speaking cynically here, they're just really great telly because they're, they're wonderful people. They speak from the heart. You know, there's. I've never had a soundbite from a carer that's been boring. I don't yeah. know, wh- you know, I don't know why they're not interviewed more often, but it's because they don't have that gravitas of, oh, you know, I've got a degree and therefore my opinion is incredibly important.
1: Yeah. A friend of mine, she's a carer for uh, adults with autism and her job is, I mean, she has had to learn a different language essentially. Um, and she has to deal with sometimes very, very tense situations. She is very, very, very skilled at her job but people don't consider the work that she does to be skilled work and I wouldn't be able to do it. She's a trained professional in what she does and I wouldn't be able to do it. And it just I find it phenomenal that she would be just discarded as if, like, you know, it's nothing. And people often say to her, why don't you train to be a nurse? Or like, why don't you, why don't you uh, go into a medical profession? um, And she's just like, well, actually, this is my job. This is my vocation. This is the thing I really, really love doing. And that's just really, really rubbish the way that we, um, we treat people like that. And I I never want older people to feel, um, and it's a sort of British, maybe it's a British thing. I don't know. Uh, I only think that because I'm British, but like this idea that you're a burden, the, the people who are the least burdensome always think they're the most burdensome. And I'm speaking as a constituency member of parliament here, (laughs) that people who have like, you know, got really, like really serious problems, like they've just been made homeless and something terrible's happened and by no fault of their own, they're, you know, in terrible trouble. And they're like, oh, you know, just 10 minutes is all I need. I don't want to be a bother to you. And then, you know, people who have a, Cracked paving slab outside their house will be like, I demand to see you immediately, and it's like, this is not proportionate. This is not a proportionate response.
0: <laughs> oh, the life of an MP. I don't. I, don't, I, do, not, I do not envy you.
1: <laughs> so, but the and it's it's funny that people who often like, will you know, like Miriam would try and be not to be a burden. That like, those people are so rarely a burden. <laughs> who are concerned about
0: that. Yeah. And it was just, yeah, and it, it there were times where it was really hard with her actually because she'd do things like, and because I was there volunteering on behalf of Age UK, you know, there's certain rules. We basically became really good friends but there were still rules in the background of what you should and shouldn't be doing. Was Not it,
1: having presents and things like yeah, that. Exactly. Yeah,
0: exactly. So she, she slipped me a tenner one day and I, I was like, I can't take it, Miriam. And she was like, oh, please take it, please. Because I could, I could tell she would just was desperate for me to take some kind of token that would mean that she'd kind of repaid me. And so in the end, I took it and slipped it back through her door later. But, <laughs> and she was fuming. But um, <laughs> it was just, yeah, it was just heartbreaking, really, that she, she felt like she needed to repay me in some way just for being my mate. Also, though,
1: as well, it's just nice to give people... It's nice to give out gifts and, you know, obviously we have similar rules. And so, but it's, people want to do it because they're your friend as well. So, but it is, you can't be taking money off people that
0: you've been volunteering to. I mean, I did accept a lot of (laughs) hobnobs, but... (laughs) (laughs) Boxes of chocolates.
1: That's what I say. You can buy me a box of chocolates. That's absolutely fine. And I'll share them with the team. It's like, you know, but yeah, when people are like, oh God, like really try and give you like, really like big gifts i have a um the sapphire in this ring wasn't given to me it was given to my mum because she ran a campaign um to my nan had gone blind from a dis uh, a medication that she'd been given in the 1970s and my mum ran a campaign to get compensation for all the people who had had that and a woman left this ring to her in her will because my mum had got compensation from the company for her and she was always like oh you know I don't know whether I you know what do I do this woman's left me this thing it was a nice she she wanted to leave it to me in her will but you know it's always it's a complicated thing when you've been a representative of somebody although she wasn't an official representative she was just the daughter of somebody who had the problem but it is it's tricky so Miriam how would you sign off your letter to Miriam then
0: so to Miriam I would write thank you for being my friend and for sharing eight years of your amazing life with me P.S. I've never had a ponytail. <laughs> <laughs> I love that she she doubled down. She really <laughs> just did.
1: Insisted that you'd had a ponytail. I'm definitely like that. I will double down if I think if I've got something wrong. I'll be like, no, you, you must. You you used to be from Newcastle. It was surely. just that
0: beautiful, like grandmotherly authority. I'll tell you if you had a ponytail or not, right? <laughs> <laughs> I'm the senior in this relationship. If I say you've had a ponytail, you've had one.
1: I wonder if the other fella that she'd met had a ponytail. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Quite possibly not.
1: <laughs> we'll be back for Paul's final letter after a short break.
0: Millions of people have lost weight with personalised plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds.
1: So the final letter we have asked you to prepare is one to somebody who has had a an effect on your life, but maybe doesn't know that they've had an effect on your life.
0: Okay, so my third letter would be to my former tutor at uni, Krista Bickvist, who was a Swedish philosopher. Uh, His
1: name was Big Fist. Uh, no,
0: <laughs> but close. Bickvist. Bickvist. Okay. Probably means big fist in Swedish, but. <laughs> <laughs> Just for, clarity, just for clarity. Christopher Bigfist. Christopher <laughs> Bigfist, yeah. We'll get there. This is even harder than my son's name. <laughs> um, <laughs> Much harder. Thomas is easy. <laughs> but he was he was great. He was this kind of, exactly how you'd imagine to be this Swedish philosophy, you know, roll neck jumpers, blonde hair, beard, quite dishy actually, um, <laughs> but really softly spoken, really gentle, um, just a great guy. And I went to um, a comprehensive school in South Wales, which I'm really proud of. I hate this kind of this idea that these are like Dickensian places where you're like squabbling over a crust of bread. Uh, My school was brilliant. It was a real mix of people from all walks of life. I was really, really happy to be there, but it wasn't exactly like elite training for Oxbridge and... The teachers did their best, but, you know, we weren't exactly having kind of like training classes and how to apply to Oxford and go through the tutorial process and everything. And my mum was quite a pushy mum. I think because she went to uni when she was 40, she didn't want us to miss out on any opportunities while we were young. So she was always quite pushy. And she said, look, you're getting good grades at school. Like, why don't you try for Oxford? You know, just see how it goes. You might like it. I think you should aim as high as you can, like, see what you can do. So I applied really because my mum asked me to apply. And I went up for my interview and it was like the weirdest place on earth, which I think is how a lot of people feel who've come from comprehensive schools trying to apply to Oxford. And there were loads of people, you know, because you kind of socialise with other people who who were staying up for the interview and, you know, like tons of people from Eton and all perfectly nice, but just so confident, like so amazingly confident. And you could kind of tell that this was what they'd always dreamt of in life and being kind of trained for and so anyway I was I was really super nervous and didn't really know what I was doing in the interview and I just always remember Krista being so so kind and encouraging and asking like all the right questions you know like trying not trying to put me on the spot but sort of saying you know can you could you do you want to expand on that or you know what you know, what about this and it was just really really gently kind of teasing out of me whether he thought I was you know worth a place or not basically and to my You know, genuine amazement I got in, which was also crushingly horrendous because I didn't want to go. What a what a terrible problem to have. Well yeah, it was (laughs) My diamond shoes don't fit. (laughs) Yeah, I know. It is a bit like that, isn't it? But genuinely I heard I heard the Labour MP Lucy Powell speaking about this recently, and I felt exactly the same as her, which was that like I say, my mum was sort of saying, you know, aim for, the, aim for as high as you can. And I felt like I had to go, you know, I, I can't turn down a place, like you can't do that. But at the same time, I I really didn't think I was going to fit in there in the slightest. And I really wanted to go to a big city like Manchester or London, where there are all kinds of different people and... I just had all these kind of, you know, nightmares of being the only gay in the college and all that sort of thing at Oxford. And anyway.
1: I'm sure that was not the case.
0: <laughs> well, I was actually the only one in my year, but yeah, I'm sure they were, oh, really? there have been more since. Let's put it like that, um, that have later, later uh, emerged. But anyway, to cut a long OTT sub story short, I, I didn't feel great about it. And I remember going to to dinner on the first um, couple of nights is very Oxford thing. You go for dinner with your tutors, you know, lovely.
1: Unbelievable, yeah.
0: Had an, uh, had an avocado for the first time in my life. And a lovely chat to Krista. And I remember saying to him, you know, trying to make small talk, I was like, oh, so why did you know? Why did you pick me? And he said to me, because I know I can teach you. And that was actually just a really simple phrase. It wasn't particularly emotional or emotive, but it was actually one of the most helpful people, most helpful things that anyone has ever said to me in life. Because, You know, you're looking around at all these people who know it all already. And to have him say to me, essentially, it's okay that you don't know it all. I just think that you want to learn and I can teach you. And he just became a great mentor to me at uni. And he really got me through uni and kind of taught me that that they're the kind of people you want to look out for in life. You know, the people who want to teach you stuff. And I've been super lucky at ITV. I've had some great mentors in my career and I'm kind of always looking out for the Krista in the room. You know, who's going to who's going to help me out a bit? Who's going to teach me stuff that I don't already know? So yeah, he was just a, a really great guy. I
1: mean, he sounds brilliant, and also like you must have liked you because it must be a pain in the ass to have to teach people who think they know it all. Do you know what I mean? Like, oh, give it a rest. Like you, uh, like you, you read these amazing things about people on their Oxford interview saying something totally acerbic and brilliant, and you can't tell if they're apocryphal <laughs> or not. Like you know, they're like, is this a, is this a question? Is this an answer? That sort of that like. Whether those things ever actually happened when people were interviewing to go to Oxford, I have absolutely no idea, but I have heard tell of such stories. But um, I would just be thinking, you're a smart ass If that was your answer, like, oh, get over yourself. So he probably felt very similarly. Like, that's a, like, a thing for him to say to you is like, you know, that's it's him saying to you that he appreciates you as well as... You could appreciate him.
0: Yeah, it was just it was just really helpful. And um, you know, look, I've had a I've had a great life, and my my parents are wonderfully supportive. I'm not suggesting for a minute that you know this was this was some kind of tale of woe of mine. But I think you know in those in those top unis, there is a big difference in the confidence levels from state school and from private school, and you really feel it when you turn up. So. It was just a really great leveler for him to have said that to me.
1: I I think that uh, I notice it in my kids' school now. Actually, they do like put because I go in, I get asked to go in and judge them. They do public speaking and things. I didn't I didn't ever have to speak in front of a crowd of people, which obviously I've now made a career out of. But I didn't ever have to do that until the first term I was at university when I had to do a presentation and I genuinely went to the doctors and asked for beta blockers because I was so terrified of doing it. And it was like for five people in a like room that you had to make a presentation. Whereas there were kids in my class and they had obviously done it a lot of times before. And I think that like my kids definitely do it and they go to a state comprehensive school. I think that there has been a sort of uptick in some of that confidence building stuff. Um, in state education but you're right it's like a different training ground to come from
0: it it felt to me as though going to comprehensive school you know we and and like I say I say this as someone who's proud to have gone to comprehensive school but it was very much focused on you know jump over these hurdles use this revision guide to get all the basics and you'll pass your exams because that was the amount of time and resources that teachers had available really was to put into that whereas I think From my impression, in public school, there's a lot more extracurricular debating and all that stuff that helps you build confidence around your arguments that you're making in life. So yeah, it was apparent. Did you go to Oxford with anybody who's now a Member of Parliament? Not anyone I was mates with, but Bridget Phillipson was in the year above me, yeah. So I knew some people that she knew, Yeah. Yeah. I
1: mean, that's the obvious question to ask anyone who went to Oxford because loads of members of parliament went to Oxford. And I know Lucy and Lucy and Joe Cox, funnily enough, the two people who spoke to me about that. I think Lucy, didn't Lucy go to Cambridge?
0: I think she did go to Cambridge. She left after a couple of years because she didn't enjoy it.
1: She left after two years because she didn't. Yeah. And Joe went to Cambridge and found it really, really difficult to fit in and found it a real struggle yeah that lots of members of parliament went to oxford didn't they so that's always my question Did, did so bridget phillipson is a good answer I don't even think I knew that she went to Oxford, so there you go. Very shiny hair. I don't know if she learnt that at Oxford.
0: Yeah, was that part of the course? I very much doubt it.
1: You and your ponytail <laughs> you know, could have you, got very shiny.
0: You know how you're saying that tyrants are very sharply dressed? Yeah. Oxford students aren't generally known for their cutting-edge styles, so I think Bridget probably learnt her brilliant hair from, from Sunderland rather than from Oxford. Sunderland.
1: It's a Sunderland thing, yeah. I think it, it might be. Um, and did you ever tell Chris how much he'd uh, had an influence on your life?
0: No, not really. I remember going back. We went back for graduation, obviously, and my parents came and we had, again, a lovely dinner. It's always a dinner. It was always a dinner, at Oxford. Uh, a lovely dinner with uh, the tutors. And um, and they were, they were just, you know, two little Welsh people sitting there in awe of him. And, and they had a nice chat. And I think they said to him, you know, well, you were Paul's favourite tutor and thank you so much. But no, I never really quite put it like that to him I think sometimes with these things it's only in time that you reflect on what people have done for you
1: yeah especially as you become an adult yeah yeah you know like you, you didn't realize like it was actually quite a tough gig for adults
0: yeah <laughs> you just thought that they were losers <laughs> why are you saying me an essay I mean what is wrong with <laughs> you I hate you <laughs> yeah
1: like can't I just have an extension yeah. for god's sake yeah. like I'm very busy being interesting is he still alive?
0: Yeah, I looked him up, actually, and he's he's still around. He's he, I think he lives in Sweden now. He's gone back to Sweden, but, yeah, he's still uh, still got his role now. I mean, he's won
1: at Life's Lottery, I think, being Swedish. I just think it's the best one to be. Oh,
0: yeah. I just, I
1: really love the Swedes. As somebody who works in equality a lot, I do get a bit eye-rolly about them. Like, oh, I bet it's better in Sweden.
0: Oh, God, let like, tell me how it's better in Sweden. They always high up the league tables, aren't they, and everything.
1: And everything, I know. Like, oh, gosh, well done, Sweden. Also, great furniture.
0: Yeah, excellent furniture. But, you know, they've exported it around the world.
1: They have. They have. That is absolutely true. I mean, you're right. That is the most successful export, isn't it, from Sweden? Probably. IKEA.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Maybe fish. No, IKEA. IKEA.
1: I think IKEA. (laughs) Swedish meatballs, lingonberry sauce, the gravy. There's much more to Swedish culture than this, of course. And ABBA. That's got to be one
0: of the greatest exports. Come on. ABBA. Yeah, ABBA and Flat Pack Furniture. Maybe ABBA while making Flat Pack Furniture.
1: What a legacy, that and Brilliant Equality. So we have a letter to Thomas for him to open when he's 18, a letter to Miriam Hobbs, and then the final one was to Crick Bigfist. So how would you sign off your letter to Chris?
0: So because he really uh, taught me a lot about who to look out for and who, who kind of is um, useful to seek out in life, I would write to him thank you for teaching me more than you'd ever intended to because, yeah, he taught me a lot about philosophy but also a lot about life. Well, the two things are kind of related, aren't they, I guess? I was going
1: to say, isn't that, isn't that what that is? I don't know. I... Maybe
0: he wasn't that nice. He, I was just learning <laughs> philosophy.
1: <laughs> it's his philosophy. He's got his own philosophy now. The Chris Bickvist philosophy is to, you know, look out for the person you, who can actually teach you a lesson. That's a great one. Um, my son's just started learning philosophy at school and I have f- for a very long time. And he's only in he's in year eight. I keep thinking he's in year seven, but one was a pandemic year. I really like wanted them to start doing philosophy rather than some of the other stuff that they do. This I thought it was important, but he moans and rolls his eyes every time he has to do philosophy. He said he 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 aced the feminism bit. I was like, good.
0: Yeah. Well, maybe they just don't teach it in a kind of exciting way then, I don't know. Yeah. In France, it's um, compulsory from like the age of four. I I just imagine though that French people sit around talking about philosophy all All day long. All day long.
1: (laughs) That's all they do. Yeah. I mean, that is my experience of them, almost exclusively. Of all the French people I know, they all talk about philosophy all the time whilst drinking wine out of a small cup. Not to stereotype that my family live in France and that's what they do all day long. So it's not a stereotype, this is my lived experience and cannot be questioned. So, oh, they all sound absolutely lovely people. And now I'd like to imagine them all hanging out together, like Miriam seeing Thomas and, uh, and Chris Bickvus tuning in to you on the news and being chuffed that you did well. He must be chef.
0: Well, either that, or highly disappointed that I didn't become a philosopher or something, and, and actually write something more profound than just a TV script. But
1: <laughs> it's, it's, you're talking about people's lives. It's like important.
0: The philosophy of life. Yeah, the, yeah. The real, the practical philosophy.
1: So for, yeah, like like the real politic. Uh, yeah, yeah. This is like. Practical philosophy. Well, it has been an absolute pleasure as always to talk to you, Paul. And thank you for sharing your lovely people with me. And one day maybe I'll actually get to meet Thomas and uh, give him a cuddle because it's just it's such a lovely story when anyone in Parliament that you work alongside when they have a baby. It engenders a really lovely sense in Parliament, which can sometimes feel like a horrible place to work. <laughs> And so it was a lovely news when you had had your baby for all of us. No worries.
0: Well, it's been lovely to talk about some uplifting things today rather than just the doom and gloom of the news. And thanks so much for having me on. No worries.
1: Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Yours Sincerely with Jess Phillips. If you want to hear more conversations just like this, make sure you follow Yours Sincerely with Jess Phillips on the podcast provider of your choice. And why not write a letter to your friends, telling them all about this podcast?
0: A lot can happen in the next three years, like a chatbot maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. And you can
1: also follow us on social media. We're at Jess Phillips Pod.
0: Goodbye.